grab your Bible, let's go back to John chapter 6, picking up the story from uh, last week, that fantastic miracle of Jesus where he fed the multitude of men, women, and children. And um, as we mentioned last week, the miracles of Jesus set the stage for a declaration of Jesus. And so the miracles are never the goal, the signs are never the goal, and we see that as John concludes his gospel account in chapter 20, verse 31. These are written, these signs are written, that you might believe. And so the goal of the signs is to point to the one in whom we are to believe. And so we have this this miracle where Jesus feeds 5,000 men plus women and children with uh, bread and with fish. And then a follow-up miracle there in the middle of chapter 6 where Jesus walked on water to his disciples and then the next day we come to this situation where this crowd's following after jesus and jesus they strike up a conversation with him and jesus starts narrowing the conversation to one thing namely himself and so i want to ask the question why do you seek jesus and do you even seek jesus but if you would if you were to say yes i do seek jesus ask the question why uh, oftentimes, many people seek Jesus for the wrong reasons, reasons such as uh, he can fix my life. He just makes me feel better. He's a good person for me to model my life after. He's a good role model. Uh, he makes my marriage and my family better. He helps me with directions for decisions in life. He uh, is my last resort, my final option. He can help me meet my needs. He helps me make it through the day. And so all of these false reasons for following jesus we see and we'll see it as the crowd this this group interacts with jesus after this miracle there's only one valid reason for us seeking after jesus and that reason is jesus jesus alone is the reason that we seek after jesus he is the goal of our pursuit after him he is the supreme treasure and so we seek jesus for jesus not as if jesus needs us to seek after him let's be clear here we are not filling up in Jesus any deficiency. He is all sufficient in and of himself. So he does not need us to seek after him. But as we're seeking after him, our goal in seeking after Jesus is Jesus. He is the reward. He is the prize. And so when we seek after Jesus for the sake of Jesus, we receive his gifts. We behave rightly. We see him move in our lives. We rest secure in his safekeeping. However, we must seek Jesus purely for the sake of seeking Jesus. And so too often, self becomes kind of a, a subversive goal in how we seek after Jesus. Let's be honest. We are selfish. We are. Every one of us. Don't look at the rest of the room and say, yeah, y- y'all are. Because we are. We're collectively a bunch of selfish people. We are self-centered. And so we often fall into the trap of seeking Jesus for how Jesus can benefit us. And it's a subtle lie of the enemy, a subtle lie of our own flesh, where we start to seek after Jesus, just like this crowd is seeking after Jesus, as we'll see in a minute, for the sake of what he can do for us. We must seek Jesus for Jesus, for who he is and for what he's done, his person and his work. He alone is worthy of our seeking. And so there are four requests that are made from this crowd that illustrate the self, some of the self-centered reasons for seeking after Jesus. And 
as they go through this conversation with these requests to Jesus, we see four opportunities for Jesus to expose these selfish motivations and to use this conversation, to use the miracle, to expound on the nature of his person and work. Now, to let you know where we are in context, the we've crossed over the sea a couple times, right? We were on one side of the sea where Jesus performed the miracle, and then they remember they want to take him by force and make him king. And Jesus would have none of it, so he dismisses the crowd, sends his disciples away, probably so they don't get caught up in the frenzy. And Jesus goes up on the mountain to pray. Nightfall comes, and in the middle of the night, the disciples are in the middle of the sea, rowing against the wind and not going anywhere right in the middle. And Jesus comes walking to them and calms the storm, and immediately they're on the other side. That's where we pick up the story for today. Chapter 6 and verse 59 tells us that this conversation is happening in the synagogue. So Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. So he's gone from a massive crowd on a hillside where he's teaching to still a significant crowd as you kind of get the feel of the the storyline here. But it's in in the synagogue in a religious center where this conversation is going on. And so we'll walk through the story, uh, verses 22 through verse 40, and then pick up the second half of the conversation next week. So here we go, John chapter 6 and verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had only been one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. So you get the picture. Sun rises. It's a new day. Opportunity for what? A new meal, a new miracle, a new show. And they come and they seek Jesus. Wait, he's not here. Let's go and find him. And so they're seeking after Jesus. And so that that phrase there at the end of verse 24 sets kind of the framework for the message. They're seeking Jesus. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? That's an absolutely ludicrous question. He just fed them all miraculously. And now they're like, how are you going to prove that you are who you're saying that you are? So what work do you perform? Verse 31, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Kind of gives some insight into what they're actually asking for, right? They're not looking to see if he's truly the Messiah. They're asking for the same thing that happened yesterday to happen today. We don't want to work for our food. We want you to give us our food is essentially what's going on. And so Jesus says, verse 32 to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who <clears throat> comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, that sounds pretty good, sir. Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, 
that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. So then the conversation goes on and they kind of banter back and forth. We'll look at their responses to Jesus next week. But this conversation sets the stage, especially the declaration of Jesus in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Understanding like what just happened. The miracle was bread, right? And so the miracle sets the stage for the declaration. The miracle of Jesus feeding the crowd with bread causes them to say, hey, we want more bread, kind of like the whole manna in the wilderness thing. And then Jesus says, you guys are totally missing it because I am the bread. And so we see back to verse 24, this crowd is coming and they are seeking Jesus. But with these questions, there are four four requests that they make of Jesus, three questions and then one specific request. We see improper motives for seeking after Jesus. So the first, the first, and I'm, each point is posed as a question for us to think personally upon with the conversation between Jesus and, and the crowd in the synagogue. So question number one, do you seek Jesus for his gifts or do you seek Jesus for the giver? Do you seek Jesus for his gifts or do you seek Jesus for the giver? So the crowd shows up the next day, verses 22 through 24, Looking for the same thing. But it's like, oh wait, where'd they go? Jesus and the disciples are gone. And so the question, the first question that the crowd poses to Jesus is in verse 25. Rabbi, when did you come here? It sounds good. It's verse 24. Like we would see, wait, they're seeking after Jesus. That's a good thing. We want people to seek after Jesus. We want to seek after Jesus. And they ask the question, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus, knowing the hearts and minds of men, knows that not all who seek Jesus truly seek Jesus. And the way they address Jesus exposed what they believe about Jesus. They refer to him as what in verse 25? Rabbi, which means teacher. You're one who has authority in teaching. But as the, as the teacher that they're recognizing the authority in teaching begins to teach them, what do they start doing? They actually start arguing with him. So they're giving him a title that they're not placing any validity toward him and just previously like the day before they wanted to make him what king but they had no true clue about what is what the true essence of his kingdom was in either case whether they want him to be king or they want him to be rabbi they're attempting to use jesus for their own personal benefit they want the gifts of jesus without the giver and so verse 26 jesus understands their inquiry understands the nature and he says and he says to them Truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. And so they've gone from being amazed by the show to wanting to use Jesus for their own personal benefit. Notice they didn't ask him, how did you get here? They just said, when? We missed out on something. And they recognized that there was one boat that went, and the disciples went in one boat, and Jesus went the other way. But now Jesus is on the other side. Like, just totally oblivious to the potential of another miracle happening here. And so rather, uh, rather than, than chasing Jesus for another meal, verse 27, Jesus tells them that they should have been seeking him for the food that actually never perishes. Because if you're chasing Jesus for another meal, what do you have to come back for? Another meal. He feeds you today. What does he feed you tomorrow? Another meal. Now, the nature of bread is important in the context. Bread in this culture, in this society, in this day, was, and even in these regions, even today, is a staple of life. That's why Jesus said, pray this way, give us this day our daily, what? Bread. That's the sustenance of life. 
And so they're coming and they're asking him for food. And Jesus says, don't labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. Their problem was that they totally missed the nature of the sign. They totally missed the nature of the miracle that happened just one day before. The miracle was intended to reveal the glory of Jesus, but they absolutely missed it. And we have to we have to self-reflect here, think for a moment. How often are we guilty of enjoying and even pursuing the good gifts that God provides without pursuing the giver who provides the gifts? We can be and we often are guilty of this very point. Pursuing the gifts from God, the good gifts that he provides for the sake of the gifts and not for the sake of the giver. And so there are three phrases that Jesus uses in verse 27 that help, help us to understand what he's, what he's pointing toward with regard to the giver and not just the gifts. He says, first, do not labor for the food that perishes in verse 27. They're looking for a, they're looking for a meal. They're looking for a product. And Jesus is saying, if you, if you're just looking for a product, that product perishes. If you're looking for a meal, you're going to need another one. Don't labor for the food that, that perishes, but labor for food that endures to eternal life. So what is this food that endures to eternal life? As the text unfolds, it's believing on the Son of Man, believing on Jesus, believing on not the gifts, but believing on the giver. 1 John 2.17, John records it later this way, the world is passing away and its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides for how long? Forever. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So do not labor for the food that perishes, labor for the food that endures to eternal life. And then the third phrase, on him, on the Son of Man, the Father has set his seal. Now, remember the context. Jesus is with a crowd in the synagogue, and they recognize him as rabbi. And so in this context of in the crowd, in the synagogue with the crowd, Jesus says on him, the father has set his seal. And the idea here of seal is that God has authenticated Jesus and has authorized Jesus. So Jesus has the authenticity of God, but he also has the authority of God and he has authority to give eternal life to whomever he will as the story unfolds so we have to ask the question do we seek jesus for just as good gifts now, let's just be honest does god give his children good gifts definitely does god give the unbelieving world good gifts yes the rain the sun coming up in the morning the fact that you live and breathe is a good is a common grace good gift from god that everybody whether you're in or out of the covenant with god experiences and so God does give good gifts to his children and to the world at large. But for his children specifically, we can very easily and very subtly start pursuing God for the gifts and forsake the giver of the gifts. And the gifts, in essence, become what? Idols in our lives. And so we don't seek for gifts, we seek for the giver. So the first question is, do you seek Jesus for his gifts or do you seek Jesus for the giver of the gifts. Second question. Going with question two from the crowd in the synagogue. Do you seek Jesus to earn God's favor? Or do you seek Jesus because you have God's favor? Do you seek Jesus to earn God's favor? Or do you seek Jesus to, because you have God's favor? So look at verse 28. Question two from the crowd. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? 
What must we do? This is a, a matter of behavior in their mind. And so for the Christian, does behavior matter? Does it matter how we behave, church? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so we have to ask the question, are we, do we seek Him to earn God's favor or do we seek Him because we have God's favor? Their question is, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And so do we behave the way that we, we behave because we have God's favor or do we behave the way that we behave to earn God's favor? Their question was, what can I do to earn the favor of God? They asked about works, verse 28. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Verse 29, Jesus answered them, this is the work. So they go from plural. What, we, don't, we want to do the works of God. Jesus comes and says, verse 29, this is the work of God, singular. They were looking for what? A prescription. They were looking for a formula. Do this, 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 and this, and you will be doing the works of God. They were looking for something that they could accomplish. And Jesus comes and by saying, no, it's not about works. It's about one work turns their idea of an equation just on on its head. And so what is this one work of God that Jesus tells them they have to do? Verse 29. This is the work, one, this is the work of God that you what? Believe in Him whom He has sent. That you believe. And in this idea of believing as the work of God, the single work of God, we see Jesus as being supremely worthy of our life's worship. We see Him as life's supreme treasure. We see Him as the all-satisfying, He's going to declare in verse 35, the all-satisfying bread of life. We believe Him and receive Him. All the way back to chapter 1, John chapter 1, verse 12, to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name. So, follow-up question to question number two here. Do works have any place in the life of a believer? Do works have any place in the life of the believer? You better believe it. Absolutely. Works for the believer flow from worship for the believer. Behavior flows from belief. We believe on Jesus, and since we believe on Jesus, that means we're going to behave a certain way. But we're not behaving that way so that we can earn God's favor. Right? We're behaving that way. Why? Because we have God's favor. We have all the love that God could bestow upon us. And nothing that we do or don't do is going to make God love us more or less. All of the love that God has for us as His children is ours in Christ. And so that becomes the motivator for our seeking after Him and doing so by behaving a certain way. Do works have a place in the life of the believer? Yes, definitely. Ephesians 2, a passage that we use to declare salvation by grace alone through faith alone in christ alone for by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing it is the what gift of god not a result of works so works don't save right but that doesn't mean that works don't matter not a result of works, so that no one may boast paul goes on in verse 10 and writes for we are his workmanship created in christ jesus for what good works so do works matter yes which God prepared beforehand. So it's not like God just saved you before the foundation of the world, but God also established the works that you're going to perform before the foundation of the world, that we should walk in them. And so the question is, do we, are we seeking Jesus to earn God's favor, or are we seeking Jesus because we actually have God's favor? We're not saved by works. 
But we are saved unto works. And the reason why we behave certain ways, the reason why we do certain things, don't do certain things, is because we actually have God's favor. How guilty are we of thinking that if I just stop doing this, then God's going to love me a little bit more. You know what, if I'll just start doing this, if I'll just start giving some money, if I'll just start witnessing, if I'll just start reading my Bible every day, then God's going to love me a little more. But the truth of the gospel just explodes that falsehood in our hearts. Because the truth of the gospel is that you can't do anything that's going to make God love you more. He loves you not on the basis of what you've done, but on the basis of Jesus. And so the motivator is totally different. And so we seek God to to know Him because we have His favor, not to earn His favor. So question number three. Question number three, coinciding with a third question from the group in the synagogue. Do we seek Jesus to see signs, or do we seek Jesus to know the Son? Do we seek Jesus to see signs, or do we seek Jesus to know the Son? So verse 30. So that Jesus tells them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. It's, it's as if they just are absolutely clueless. And let's be careful. If we were there, we would be asking the same questions, right? Like, let's, we can't throw rocks at these people because we are these people. Verse 30, they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? It's like, what does ludicrous breed? More ludicrous statements. Do we seek Jesus to see signs or seek Jesus to know the Son? Now, the, the previous question that they asked in verse 28, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered that question in a way that they couldn't respond to. So then they say in verse 30, okay, well, then what sign do you do? What work do you perform? So they previously asked, what works do we need to do? And now they're saying, what work do you perform that we would believe? This selfish seeking after Jesus ignores the way that God has worked in, worked in the past. He just fed a multitude of people. He just miraculously provided a meal for a multitude. And it's as if they are just totally, like yesterday didn't happen. And it's because they're coming to Jesus just for another sign, not the one who is performing these signs to lead them to believe. And if we aren't careful, we can do the same. We can ask God in maybe spiritual language ways to prove himself to us. Like, God, I really need you to show yourself strong in this situation. We get ourselves in a bind. God, I need you, I need you, to, I need you to help me pull this one out. Jesus is the sovereign king of the universe. He needs to prove himself to no one. And here's a crowd of people that say... Hey, prove yourself. Prove you are who you say you are. And so the nature of this group's real request is give us a daily provision just like you gave us yesterday. But there's also something else going on here in the Jewish culture of the day. There's also, there was also this Jewish belief that the coming Messiah would, like Moses, call down a provision of manna from heaven to Israel, just like Moses did in the wilderness. So understanding the context and the culture here helps us to really get to the point of their question. Like, what work will you do? We want you to do the same thing that Moses did for our forefathers in the wilderness. And it's actually, if you think about it, it's very similar to the way that Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. 
right? How did Satan tempt Jesus? Prove yourself. Verse 3, Matthew chapter 4, verse 3. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the Son of God. The next temptation that Satan brings to Jesus. If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. On their hands he will, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And so there's this tendency to seek signs. Lord, give me a sign when we have the Son. S-O-N, the Son of God. We read in Mark 8 where the Pharisees came and they began to argue with Jesus and they're seeking a sign from heaven to test Him. And this is the response that Jesus gives toward the Pharisees who are saying, show us a sign. And He sighed deeply in His spirit. Like mourned within Himself that they are totally oblivious to the signs that He has performed pointing to who He is. And He says, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And He left them, He got into the boat and went to the other side. What is the ultimate and final sign that Jesus performs that validates who Jesus is? Resurrection. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus refers to Jonah as a parallel to him, to himself. And he says, as Jonah was in the belly for three days, so will the Son of Man be in the belly. And there's a lot of misinterpretations of that, but the point is, for Nineveh, for the people of Nineveh, when Jonah showed up after being in the belly of a fish for three days and preached the gospel, that was authenticated in their mind, and there's this massive outpouring in Nineveh. And Jesus comes and says, His death and resurrection will be the ultimate sign that validates who He is. And He's going on in this conversation with with the crowd and he says they they ask him for for manna verse 31 our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written he gave them bread from heaven to eat jesus said to them truly truly i say to you it was not moses who gave you bread from heaven but my father gives you true bread from heaven for the bread of god is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world pointing to the fallacy that they have in this situation where they're saying, hey, can you just do for us what you did yesterday and do that again and again and again and again and again? And Jesus' point is, if I do that again, you have to come back again because you're pursuing the food that perishes. You need to pursue the food that leads to eternal life. And what is this bread, verse 33? This bread is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so his point is, don't focus on Moses and what he provided. You're, you're selling yourself short if all you're wanting is a meal. Don't focus on Moses and what he provided. Focus on me and what I provide, namely eternal life. End of verse 33. He gives life to the world. Now, what happened after people ate the manna in the wilderness? What happened to those people? They died, right? They died. And that's, that's Jesus' point here. You eat manna, and you eat manna, and you eat manna, and you're eventually going to die. And so you go to Exodus chapter 16, and you read the story of God providing this crazy miracle for the, the people of Israel in the wilderness. And you read specific instruction. You take up enough for your family. If you take too much, it's going to rot. If you try to bankroll it and sandbag for the rest of the week, it's going to rot. When you get to the Sabbath, you take two days, and then that's not going to rot. All this, all this qualification about how you're to take up this bread. And Jesus comes and says, hey, that bread only pointed to me, the bread. Because he's going to come in verse 35 and say, I am the bread of life. 
And the only sign that we need is a sign that will come. His ultimate death and resurrection, which is the ultimate sign. So question one, do we seek Jesus for his gifts or do we seek Jesus for the giver? Question two, do we seek Jesus to earn God's favor or do we seek Jesus because we have God's favor? Question three, do we seek Jesus to see signs or do we seek Jesus to know the son? And then question four, do we seek Jesus for our flesh or do we seek Jesus because of our faith? Verse 34, we have the fourth question, fourth request from the crowd. And they said to him, that sounds pretty good. Give us this bread always. So at face value, they hear Jesus' words here. It wasn't Moses who gave you bread, but my father gave you the bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they're like, okay, that sounds good. We'll take that. We'll have that. And then Jesus comes and says, I am the bread of life. To clear up any confusion, to clear up any misconception, I am the bread of life. Their final request goes straight to the heart of the issue that they've been pushing toward this whole time. What, are, what, is the, what is their God in this situation? Their God is their belly. Their God is their stomach. Their God is a meal. And so they hear Jesus' words and they interpret them as the bread from heaven that they want, this manna. And they say, sir, give us this bread always. It sounds very similar to the interaction that Jesus has with the Samaritan woman at the well, doesn't it? Remember in John chapter 4, Jesus declared himself to be the, the water that I will give to him will well up within him a spring leading, leading to eternal life. And the woman at the well says to Jesus, Sir, give me, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Very similar with the crowd here in the synagogue. The physical bread isn't God's true and lasting provision. Only Jesus is. So verse 35, Jesus comes and teaches the crowd that the issue isn't food, the issue is faith. And Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. He says, verse 35, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And so, how do we come to Jesus? He says, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. We come to Jesus with nothing to offer, no works, with nothing to offer but our sin-wrecked life, trusting that He is the only one who can save our soul. He is the only one who can redeem us from death. And the crowd's response up to this point is that of disbelief. Look at verse 36, what Jesus says to them, But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. And, I mean, we're looking at it from this perspective. And we think, how can you not believe? He just performed this miracle and provided for everyone. Surely, having faith in this person makes sense to you. But we are the crowd. We are the crowd. So guilty of pursuing after Jesus, seeking after Jesus, for self-serving reasons. And Jesus will have none of it. He points to their disbelief. They've seen Jesus work, but they're only seeking Him out of curiosity, out of meals, out of political interest. They want Him to be king, not because of faith. They see Him as a prophet. They see Him as a king. They see Him as a rabbi. They see Him as a sir. Verse 34, sir, give us this bread always. But they don't see Him as God. And so what Jesus does here in verses 37 through 40 is He uses the needs of the flesh, namely food, to explain the nature of faith. And so, 
at the end of this initial conversation that Jesus has with the crowd, he, expl- he, he speaks to the true nature of conversion, of what it means to be saved, of what, it, of what it means to become a follower of Jesus. And so in verse 37, he teaches the crowd and us that all that the Father gives will come and all who come will stay. All the Father gives will come and all who come will stay. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Two definitive statements. Leave no room for ifs, maybes, kindas, ish, nothing. Verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me. And he's talking here about people. All the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, consider the context. A multitude of people on the other side who have seen signs but do not believe. And like we're reading the story and we're thinking, surely Jesus has to be getting frustrated with this crowd. Like he taught them. He fed them. And now they're pursuing after Him. And He's still pointing to Himself. He declares Himself to be the bread of life. Surely they're going to get to that point and be like, oh, okay, we don't need a meal. We need you. Yes. Where do we sign up for this? But Jesus comes and says, all the Father gives me will come to me. Which points to the fact that Jesus is not frustrated at any point in this situation. Jesus is absolutely confident in this whole situation. He has confidence in the Father's redemptive purposes. He knows that the plan is set. He knows that all that the Father gives him will come to him. No doubt. Who are the ones that the Father's, Father gives? All that the Father gives. Who is He referring to here? He's referring to those who are elect to salvation. Ephesians 1.4 Those chosen before the foundation of the world to believe in Jesus. And so Jesus as God knows that this is how this thing is going to happen. And so in the context, it's becoming clear that you are not the ones the Father is giving to me. But I'm still going to declare who I am. I am the bread of life. And so all the Father gives to me will come. But then at the second half of verse 37, there's this, this is confidence for us. And whoever comes to me, I will what? Never cast out. So it's not as if the Father is giving me to Jesus and then Jesus is like, "Mm, let me think about this for a minute. No, if the Father is giving me to Jesus, Jesus is receiving me in to himself. And so all the Father gives will never be cast out. And then in verse 38, 39, he teaches that all who come will never be lost. A purpose statement, an explanation clause in verse 38. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So what is that will? Verse 39. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So this purpose clause points to the fact that why will Jesus preserve all who come to Him? Why? Because it's the Father's will. Because the Father wills that none should be lost. All who come to Jesus will never be lost. So pointing to another deep theological truth that once we are saved, we are saved. And we are not saved on our own merits and we're not sustained in our salvation by our own merits. We are saved only on the merit of Christ, and we are kept in that salvation only on the merit of Christ. And church, that's good news for us. Because if it's up to me, I know that I can do plenty enough for God to kick me out. Right? But in the context of salvation, knowing that, the, that salvation by Christ is, 
on the basis of Christ reminds me that all who come to Jesus will never be lost. And then in verse 40, he teaches that God wills that everyone who looks to Jesus and believes will have life. Verse 40. What is the will of God? For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. A phrase is used twice now, raise raise it up on the last day and then raise Him up on the last day, pointing to this ultimate, final, redemptive resurrection that, that Christ will perform with those who believe on Him. But in verse 40, he says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life. And I will raise Him up on the last day. God wills that everyone who looks to Jesus and believes on Jesus will have life. Now we see two Two realities at work here, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on Him should have eternal life. And that's God's will. So we have these two realities of God's divine sovereignty, man's absolute responsibility. And what are they doing? In one verse, they're sitting right next to one another and just chilling. And just hanging out. And we come to it and we're like, wait, that doesn't make sense. We have to figure out how to reconcile these things. But in the divine economy and the mind of God, these two realities need no reconciliation. Because they are both equally true and not at odds with one another. God's divine sovereignty and man's ultimate responsibility are here beside one another. In one verse, we see in verse 40, this is the will of my Father, God's sovereignty. Whose will is it that anybody believes? God's. And what is our response? Our response is that we are to look on the Son, verse 40, and we are to believe in Him, and we will have eternal life, and we will be raised up on the last day. And so we come to Jesus, how? By the Father's will. And so our response is that we look on Jesus, this is active, and we believe in Jesus, active. Want to know eternal life? Look to Jesus and believe on Him. And you can only do that if the Father wants you to. And these truths are sitting here in this text, harmonious with one another, and Jesus doesn't ever say, hey, let me, let me explain this to you guys in a way that you can comprehend. He just presents the truth because the whole point is not the person. It's the bread of life. The whole point is not the crowd. It's Jesus. And so we're, we don't seek Jesus in the power of our flesh. We seek Jesus in the reality of our faith. And so back to the question that we started with, why do you seek Jesus? Or do you even seek Jesus at all? What is the greatest pursuit in your life? I don't know. How do do I know what the greatest pursuit is in my life? What do you think about most often? What do you put most of your attention and effort toward? Is it your family? Is it a career? Is it some possession? Or is it Jesus? That's the diagnostic question that helps us to understand. Am I seeking Jesus for the right reason? Even in ministry, even in preaching, the temptation is to use Jesus to promote ourselves. Right. Preachers can often teachers of the word can often promote their 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 promote themselves on the back of Jesus. And it can sound good, but it can be dreadfully self-centered. And so we have to ask the question, why do we seek Jesus? Is it just because he gives us gifts or is it because he's actually the giver? Are we seeking Jesus only for the benefits? Are we seeking Jesus for the person of Jesus? Is your motivation in seeking after Jesus because you've actually looked on Him and believed on Him? Do you see Jesus as your supreme treasure in life? 
Do you see Jesus as your great reward, as your ultimate and final hope? One way of seeking after Jesus like this crowd leads to death. Because you're going to come back for the next benefit. You're going to come back for the next meal. And that's the food that perishes. But there is this food that leads to eternal life. And this food is the bread of life. The person and work of Jesus. So are we looking to Jesus just for the next meal? Just the next fix? Just the next resolution? Far be it from us. May we not be like the crowd who sought Jesus only for what He could provide to make their lives better. May we seek Jesus for the sake of Jesus. What is our goal in following after Christ? Our goal is Christ. What is our goal in following after Christ as a church? Our goal is Christ. He is our great reward. He is our supreme treasure. And anything else, anything that falls short of that supreme treasure of Christ in our pursuit of life is going to leave us coming back for food that perishes. We're going to come back again and again and again. But then there's the refrain from the word that reminds us, taste and see that the Lord is good. And when we've pursued Jesus because it's the will of the Father for us to know Jesus, there is no substitute for us. He is our great reward. We'll close this way. We're going to pray and sing one of the songs we sang to open our service. And you're free to sit. You're free to stand and sing. Sit and listen. However you want to engage. But the words of the song illustrate the reality of the text for this morning. And so we're going to sing through this song. Then I'll come back. We'll lead into the Lord's Supper. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. And then we'll sing to wrap up. And so I'm going to pray. Worship team will come and lead us in this song. You're free to sit. You're free to stand. However you are compelled to worship in the next few minutes. And then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Father in heaven, Lord, we confess that we are guilty. We're prone. We're tempted in every way to pursue after the fleeting pleasures of this world and to be incredibly self-centered even in what we, would consult, what we would consider to be our pursuit of Jesus. And so expose those areas through the Word, by the Holy Spirit, in our lives. Jesus, thank You that You are our great reward. And that anything else in life will fall dreadfully short. You are the bread of life. Not the food that perishes like the offerings of this world, but the food that springs to eternal life. Father, if somebody doesn't know you, they've not looked on Jesus and believed on Jesus, would you save them over these next few minutes? Would you lead them to repentance and faith?
Father, show us those ways that we aren't seeking you properly. We want to seek you for you. We pray it in Jesus' good name.